0: TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest-growing TV brand. Stories of that game and what happened
1: in the clubhouse is fantastic. There's no game that can bleep you like this
2: one. <laughs> it's Roycey on baseball. Let's go, here.
0: Manny
1: Hill and Ricey with our weekly baseball conversation, Buster Olney this week, and the great Kevin Kernan, uh, the uh, baseball columnist for the New York Post, and uh, I guess I fell in love most, uh, mostly for the Post uh, when I started covering baseball in the 70s and mm-hmm. went to New York, and uh, it was... Uh, it was a bonanza for a ball writer to go into New York because you had the Post and the News, with the tabloids. You had mm-hmm. Newsday, mm-hmm. which was in town then, out out on Long Island, but selling it in the paper. So you'd go buy four papers in the morning, but and then you had the New York Times, Times which yeah. gave you this erudite look at the game, and you know the this straightforward uh, look at the at the game, and then you had Newsday, which was kind of. Like that, Newsday was sort of halfway between the tabloids and the, you know, Newsday had a little edge to it, but Mm -hmm. not great. Then you had the Post of the News battling to see who could sell papers to people on the train when they were, you know, the daily news going in, the Post coming out. Those guys had constant deadlines. They were like, uh, you know, they did so many editions because they wanted to sell papers. They were sort of bloggers before blog you know before the internet because they they were cranking out you'd be in the press box at three o'clock in the afternoon and they were typing it for the 330 edition so to sell to the commuters on the way home right yeah on the train so it was a interesting thing but my favorite i guess my most memorable is the 81 world series was the first one i ever covered okay and uh and Yankee, you know that was the split season, and the, but the Yankees Dodgers yep. couldn't do better than that, <laughs> and uh, the Yankees beat them the first two in New York, beat them easy, and mm-hmm. went out to Dodger Stadium, and you figured they'd get it, you know, they'd they'd you know sweep them, and the Dodgers ended up sweeping them out there, and then came back and won Game Six and beat them four to two, but mm-hmm. but the. Uh, that was Winnie's first World Series, and of course, and Winnie didn't get a hit till Game 5, I don't think. Oh, wow, okay. And a little later, I think, was when George referred to him as Mr. May. <laughs> Instead, he's oh, not yeah. Mr. Okay. October. Oh, so yeah, that's where that came from, okay. But And then Winnie made the big mistake of asking for the ball after he, like, blooped the single in, and they were losing another game in the seventh <laughs> or eighth inning. But uh, allegedly, he received a death threat. In the, uh, you know... When he did? Yes. Okay. When he received a death threat, I think in his hotel room in L.A. I'm not sure, but okay. he received a death threat. Okay. And then when we got back, and we I remember flying the red eye when we got back at like seven o'clock in the morning to back to New York for the off day and bought all the papers and, and you know, went to have breakfast before I took a nap, mm-hmm. but, uh... Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the the post was, the front page was Yank Death Threats, because they'd mm. gotten a Rick Cerrone death threat, too. Okay. So our theory was the post had put in an 800 number to call in your death threats, you know. <laughs> but, the, but the front was Yank Death Threats, and they showed Winnie, like, I don't think they had a target on him, but it was basically <laughs> oh, the equivalent. God. But then the back, but then the back of the, uh, you know, the back page, which was the, you know, the, you know, always said, you know, George used to always want to make the back page, right? Mm -hmm. Steinbrenner. You got to be to make the back page in the tabloids. Yeah. And I remember it, Fear Grip Stadium. (laughs) And I loved it. (laughs) I loved it. And then, of course, you had George, who was at his insane best. Yeah. And it was during that time that he got drunk and got in a fight at the Wilshire uh, Hotel, mm-hmm. and uh, and showed up at the ballpark with bruises on his head and stuff. And and basically, George, what happened? He was his claim was that he was in the elevator with people who were bad mouthing New York. He was in the uh, you know, and he was fighting for <laughs> the for the reputation of New York, right? Yeah. yeah. And the great Leo Montville from the Boston Globe, who was probably the greatest columnist of my lifetime, even, you know, he went and Sports Illustrated, he he hung in there for maybe 20 years, 15. But he wasn't even covering the series. But I think I've told you this. He wrote the, the column about how he got in the elevator with George on the mm-hmm. first floor because this fight was on the seventh floor. And on the second floor, they kicked the crap out of a motorcycle gang. And on the third floor, they kicked the crap out of some Nazis. And, you know... I mean all the way up for five floors. He and George, you know, he and George beat the hell out of everybody who was an opponent of America, right? And then oh then he said, then I got out. I don't know what happened on the seventh floor. <laughs> it was I carried that column around for twenty five years. Oh, that's it something. was that was hysterical. But the uh, but in the my you know, my friend Tom Keegan who's now who basically his wife made him move out to Lawrence, Kansas, and he to live a more mellow existence. Now he's back, and he's writing just this year. He's writing for the Boston, uh, for the afternoon paper, the Boston Herald, mm-hmm. which, I mean, not the afternoon anymore, but the Boston the non-globe, you know, the sure. the feisty tabloid underdog, right, which is <laughs> what he does well, but he was working for the Post, and uh his famous story, where Strawberry was here mm-hmm. with the Saints.
0: Sure. So this would have been
1: what ninety three, ninety four, whatever. Yeah, right. Early, like their second year, maybe. It. Yeah. Okay. Because he ended well. No, he ended up winning the World Series. That well, also year it was so ninety six. Okay, ninety six. Probably okay. ninety six. Okay. And, uh, but Keegan's boss from the tabloid, I can't remember, a legendary guy. Send him out here and tell him, get Daryl called up, because mm-hmm. they wanted Daryl for the back page. Yeah. You know, <laughs> make George sign Daryl. And basically, <laughs> basically, Keegan was out here for like four or five days writing Daryl stuff every day. You got to have him. He's in private, you know. Mm. And then he didn't work right away, so he went home for a few days. Then he came back again, and finally... They intimidated George into signing him, and he went to Columbus, right? Yeah. And he was there like two days, mm. and he got called up. And I think <laughs> Keegan, they had a, you know, Keegan probably got a raise because he got Gerald. He put enough pressure <laughs> on George, you know, and George could see, you know, those Keegan pieces were getting big play, and they were getting on the back page. Mm. <laughs> George knew. George, you know, they George is kind of like Trump. If you appeal to his vanity, you know, and they yeah. uh, they they kept appealing to his, you know, he he saw that as Daryl would get me on the back page, so he signed Strummer. And, that, that had to have been a time oh, in the Yankees God. when George oh, was zoning. Oh, man, this is true. The Each paper, well, not the time so much, but mm-hmm. each paper would have – Three guys covering every Yankee game, right in the '90s. Yep. And, but, you know, the game ends. The beat writer and maybe the columnist would go downstairs to mm-hmm. the clubhouse, and one guy, whether it was the columnist or the guy who was writing the the clubhouse story, the mm-hmm. sidebar as we call them, would wait for George. That each paper would have, like, five guys who would wait to talk to George after every game. <laughs> and sometimes they'd be there for a half hour, 45 minutes, and sometimes George would storm out and be mad at somebody and rip him. Oh, but they man. had, you know, game story, opinion piece on the game, and, and George. the George's. <laughs> George. They had to cover George. And you had oh, to, uh, yeah, you had to cover George. And 162
0: had, times yes, a year talking to well, George. After all 81 home games. Yeah, George didn't
1: games. go much on the road. And sometimes George would be down in Tampa. He wouldn't be there. Sure. But, you know, 60 times a year he was there. And 60 times a year there'd be <laughs> a George piece. God, even, of course, that, i got to repeat my favorite George story <laughs> involving Sid. Oh, boy. Because Sid as I've told this story before, said, yeah, you, ate George, blah, blah, blah. I said, he says, we were both going to a Viking game in Tampa, Mm -hmm. you know, in October, November, probably in November. Mm -hmm. So he says, you're going to have breakfast with me and George. I said, sure, I'd love it. So we went to George's Hotel, which was right out there in the water. Not a great hotel, by the way, but uh, right on the water. Mm -hmm. Clearwater Beach. Had breakfast. Hour and a half. George was great. George was on his. He wasn't mad at anybody. Had his good behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, spent a proper amount of time telling Sid how great he was. You know, and (laughs) Sid spent a proper amount of time telling George how great he was. And I kind of (laughs) listened. But we, you know, we exchanged, you know, we exchanged stories too, and he was fine. So then the TV show, when I. Went to Barcelona, I think, like the next year for the Olympics. And George, mm-hmm. that's when the Olympic Committee brought in George. He was going to cure our declining Olympics, remember? Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. I think that's when they started paying for medals and stuff like that, which is now what they're trying to get rid of. But I run into George at the swimming and said <laughs> hello to him. Hey, how you doing? You know, he, I don't know remember my name, but he remembered me. Mm-hmm. So I sat. And It was outdoors, and it was a semi-swimming thing. And I think George liked looking at guys in speedos or something. But anyway, we, uh, you know, we sat in the sun. Oh, a gorgeous day. Sat in the sun for forty-five minutes. That back in the, it was these were prelims; they weren't finals. So, mm-hmm. uh, and just sat there and listened to him, be greeted, and talked a little bit. So <laughs> when I get back from the Olympics, oh. Uh, George, Sid's one day out of the blue screaming at me on the TV, you hate Steinbrenner, blah, blah, blah. You don't even know him. You hate him. And I said, Sid, you never even met him. I said, Sid, you took me to breakfast with you. a year ago. We spent an hour and a half. I said, in fact, we went to swimming together. You know, I made it sound like George and I had an appointment, but, you know, I overdid it, but I said, I've sat at swimming with George at the Olympics, <laughs> and said that was what Sid says. You went swimming with Steinbrenner. <laughs> <laughs> so the next week, the, the next the next week on the TV show that it should still be around somewhere. We took a couple of synchronized swimmers, you know, mm-hmm. and put George and my heads on them and, <laughs> and showed it and said, "Here you go, Sid." proof i went I swimming with we there george and i swimming together <laughs> anyway uh oh, the new awesome. york post fantastic and still hanging in still the post in the daily news and i think the post even more so still wants to sell you a news- a print newspaper you know yeah. that's still a big part of their business and uh Kevin Kernan's been uh, hanging in there for a long time, knows everybody, works his ass off at it, so uh, as Buster does. So we have Buster and Kevin coming up. Twins-Yankees going at it this week. Uh, listen, once again, if they end up playing the Yankees in the postseason and getting beat, it won't be because of a jinx. This Yankee team. This Yankee team is good. If they get a pitcher before the deadline, are they something? Are they something? All right, we'll be back with uh, Buster only. Planning for a secure future requires sound investment advice. That's why I rely on my guy, Mr. Money Talk, Josh Arnold, for guidance in planning and maintaining a long-term financial strategy. This is Ricey, and I've known Josh for many years. I trust Josh and recommend him because he listens and delivers the kind of service that you'll need to feel confident about your financial future. I encourage you to get to know him the same way I did many years ago. Call Josh Arnold at 952 925-5608 925-5608 and set up your forty-eight-minute no obligation consultation. Call nine five two nine two five-five six oh eight. You'll always get straight talk, not sugar-coated advice. Call Mr. Money Talk, Josh Arnold at nine five two nine two five-five six oh eight. Investment advisor services offered by Josh Arnold Investment Consultant, LLC, a registered advisor in the state of Minnesota. Buster Olney is with us, ESPN and ESPN.com. Buster, we uh, over this weekend, Thursday through Sunday, we had an epic four-game series between the Twins and the A's. Man, alive! You don't see uh, that many games with uh, twists and turns uh, in the middle of the summer like that. It was great.
0: Yeah, two really good teams, and it, and it feels like for both teams, you know, so much hanging in the balance. Uh, with the, the Indians starting to bear down the neck of the Twins and Oakland trying to make up ground uh, on the Astros, um, you know, I, I, I listened to Max Kepler after he got the big hit, his postgame interview, and was fascinated by the fact that it seemed like he had just made up his mind, look, I'm just gonna give two word answers to all the questions. <laughs> it was like it was like after that long, you know, grind grind of a series. He was just get ready to get back in and, and get something to drink.
1: Yeah, they got the and of course the Yankees came to town on Monday, so uh that'll you they get they'll get your attention in a hurry. But uh Rosario got the twins' biggest hit of the season on Thursday and three days later adrianza got the twins biggest hit of the season so it was that kind of a series this oakland club uh buster it's more of a lineup than we're used to seeing they basically got seven guys who play all the time instead of the you don't know who's going to be in the lineup
0: yeah the days of the money ball uh athletics where they have bits and pieces and scraps and shards that's not this team and it's a really good offensive team and You know, I love the fact that they've got guys who have just steadily improved during the course of his career, uh, their respective careers. I love, you know, uh, Matt Chapman, who uh, last year, for example, struggled against right-handed pitching, and this year he's done a lot better. And and he struggled sometimes against high fastballs, and he's done a lot better. You know, he's, to me, one of the great young players in baseball. Um, You know, the one part of the team where you, you still are amazed at times that they're able to get as much out of it as they are, or the rotation. Because it's not like they're running out a bunch of Cy Young winners. Um, you know, they they got some older guys that they have to rely on.
1: And then they lost their version of Barrios, basically, when the kid got suspended. So, uh, you know, that's a kick in the shins. But uh, Bob Melvin has proved to be a rather uh, outstanding manager, hasn't
0: he? He's been great, and it's funny, but I think in some ways, know he became the model when there was still a gap between the front offices, the analytics analytically driven front offices and the manager in trying to you know impart a lot of that information on the on the staffs. He was always the guy who could somehow talk to his players and and and, and even though he the players understood that he was getting a lot of direction from the front office, talk to his the players in a way that they would still respect him. Um, and they understood that, look, he's trying to do the best he can. And now that I think the two worlds have melded together a lot more closely <laughs> than yes. they were five, eight years ago, you know, he's adapted to that as well. And he has been one of the more underrated managers in baseball, underrated because, let's face it, in Oakland, they're never going to get a lot of attention.
1: Buster, I heard you talking Sunday night about uh, how some teams like the Giants and others aren't sure what they want to do now, give up or uh, trade. But it seems also, Buster, that those 12 teams that know they're going to be trading,
0: they're waiting cuz they know the market's big. And I got to Patrick, I got to tell you I've never seen uh the action sort of bogged down leading up to a trade deadline like it is right now and of course a lot has to happen if there's actually going to be a tra- you know a bunch of trades before July 31st with the deadline coming up so soon and the fact that it's a hard deadline this year. But yeah, you know what I've heard from teams, for example, San Francisco, you know, at 50 and 50, playing 500 ball at this point, uh, but they've been surging of late. And other teams have looked at the Giants as being a potential source of a lot of pitching because they've got Madison Bumgarner and they got five relievers and. You know, based on my conversations within the Giants organization, their feeling now is, you know what, we're going to hold on. We're going to (laughs) ride this thing out for another week. Uh, You have, what, ten teams in the National League within seven games of each other for the race of the second wild card. And so all these clubs are sitting and waiting, and so the potential buyers like the Braves and the Nationals who we saw on Sunday night, the Yankees, the Astros, they're waiting for something to break free one thing that seems to uh at this point almost seems imminent is that the Giants are not gonna be the great source that everybody expected.
1: And the uh you know, the twins obviously getting a lot of heat here with the bullpen now, struggling more than it probably has all year. Uh Taylor Rogers is the only guy they really trust and he, he had a misfortune the other night. But I I my theory is that if you're the Tigers and you maybe Matthew Boyd or somebody You're going to wait till the bitter end to see what make them, you know, make somebody give you three prospects instead of two, I would guess.
0: Yeah, or if you're the Tigers and you have a Shane Green, right? Yes. Or you're, uh, you know, the Reds and you have a Tanner Rourke now. Maybe, uh, and they haven't declared themselves actually, but, uh, you know, maybe you're you're waiting. If you're the Mets and you have a, a Zach Wheeler, although he's, you know, been on the injured list, maybe they're in a position to actually get something decent. I think the Blue Jays are in a great position because they've got Ken Giles, their closer, and they've got uh, Marcus Stroman, and they have Aaron Sanchez. And some of these contending teams, it's going to be like a game of musical chairs down the stretch. Uh, (laughs) And it feels like it's going to be so accelerated right at the end where you might have some clubs just decide, you know what, we're just going to try to dump these salaries, try to dump some money, try to save some money, as you say, maybe try to get a – a high prospect, but those last hours, yeah. the way everything is being compressed, it looks like it's just going to be incredible action down the stretch.
1: Uh, yeah, the impression I get is the teams like the Twins are saying, well, it can't get any more expensive than what it is now, so we might as well yep. wait till the end and see if they get a little desperate to dump somebody.
0: Well, and i got to tell you, I mean, I've heard some of the specific things. The teams have told me specific requests for guys like Stroman and it's like, yeah, we want you two best prospects, and other yeah. teams are like, what? <laughs> We're not doing that. Uh, and they're wondering. It's like a game of poker, and they're wondering if those prices will come down. Uh, you know, they're wondering if the if the Indians actually are going to sell Trevor Bauer. And just a specific thing on them. Uh, I talked to a team today who had uh, had come communication with the Indians in recent days, and um, and the reaction they got from the Indians was. We don't know what we're going to do yet (laughs) because, you know, they're seeing the, the margin continually go down as they chase the twins and more hope in Cleveland. I think their inclination is to trade Bauer. But if you get within one or two games by the end of this week, I don't know how you do that, and I think that the people at other front offices are asking that question as well.
1: And uh, the the thing you're hearing about Cleveland is they might trade Bauer, but it's not going to be for A-ballers. They want a couple of guys who can help them to kind of stay in this thing, you know, another pitcher and maybe get Kluber back and something like that. But it's... Uh, what's the industry feeling about uh, July 31 being a hard deadline? Are they for it or against it?
0: Boy, um... I get split reaction because I think a lot of teams would like more time uh, to make the assessment, and and I think that if you're in that camp, then what's going on this year will bolster your argument, because <laughs> there are a lot of wild card contenders in the National League who would like two extra weeks. The Giants would be at the top of that list. You know they don't want to have a situation where. Yeah. Uh, in the next week, they hang on to Bumgarner and all those relievers, and then they immediately lose their first five games after August 1st, and all of a sudden they got a bunch of assets that are, are worthless. When you're talking about relievers, are going to be free agents in the fall. But other people like it. They, they like the idea. Uh, some traditionalists that I've talked to like the idea that, look, you, you build a team during the wintertime, you go to spring training, you battle it out for the first four months. And the big market teams always seem to have such a big advantage in August in terms of making additions because they're in a better position to take on money than a team like the Cleveland Indians.
1: Uh, the 2017 Royals are still in everybody's memory, aren't they? That they it wasn't a
0: 2017 that they held on and then didn't make it, yep. right?
1: They, they, yeah, that's
0: exactly. Yeah, 100. Yeah, they're they're first and foremost, and in fact. A lot of the uh, teams are looking at what happened with the Royals, with Mustakis and Hosmer, and all those guys, and saying that's not someplace uh, that's not a trap that we want to fall into. Somebody
1: influential with the Twins told me that uh, uh, our our commissioner here has uh, got some dramatic changes in mind. Not as far as playing the game, but uh, the uh, configuration of the game that might come around in the next five years, including another wild card and perhaps uh, reconfiguring the leagues and things like that? Do you think we're gonna? that's going to
0: happen? Yes, I do be, uh, for a couple reasons. One, um, let's face it, once they get the ballpark situation settled with the Rays in Oakland, at that point I think you're going to have two uh, expansion teams because that's a great way for owners to make money, to, yes. to sell a franchise to a team in Nashville or – Portland or Montreal. Um, and also I've heard increasing unhappiness at the team level feeling that, okay, when we went to this current system, it, they wanted to reward teams for winning their divisions. But they feel like now that so many teams are looking at the, the numbers of it in this analytics era and saying it's not worth it to, to try to bolster your team just for a wild card and just to have a coin flip of a game – you know, a winner-take-all, one-game wild-card playoff. Teams, I think, don't find a lot of incentive in that. So I think that's part of the reason why Manfred wants to make changes in terms of the number of teams into the postseason. But i got to tell you, just add that to the long list oh. of items that they need to work with the union about. And yeah. we saw a development last week where Rick Shapiro, uh, you know, longtime attorney for the union, was fired by the union. He's one of their better communicators in the eyes of a lot of agents. And that's being read as a sign that the union is preparing itself for labor war and a strike in 2021. It was a bad sign. And, you know, all bets are off at that point if that happens.
1: What's the main fight going to be? You get the free agency quicker? Is
0: that going to be it? Um, A complete change of the financial landscape, but... You you kind of touched on what I think is the big problem is that if you walked up to 25 players in the Twins clubhouse today, or you know 25 players in any clubhouse, and asked them what are you guys fighting for, in the way that we could have walked up to to players in 1994 and they would tell you they were against the salary cap, I don't think the players know. Yeah, I, I've never seen a situation with the players where it feels like there's just such a lack of communication and, and a cohesion among them in terms of what they're looking for. And you can understand that because they're making more money than ever. And that's the group that, uh, you know, Tony Clark, the head of the Player Association, at some point he may ask them uh, you know, or, or advise them that the best course of action is to go out on strike. And I, I personally think that would be a disaster for the players if they actually tried to do that.
1: Uh, if the uh, Yankees end up getting home field in the American League, which it certainly looks like they're going to, How are you going to beat
0: that team in that ballpark? I I mean, I I completely agree with you. And I've heard that actually from folks in the Red Sox organization who say, yeah, the Dodgers are a really good team, but the best team in baseball right now are the Yankees. And especially uh, after we get past the trade deadline, you assume between now and July 31st that Brian Cashman, their GM, is going to add a starting pitcher. You know, whether it is a Bumgarner, it's a Bauer, or a Mike Miner of the Texas Rangers, they're going to do something else. But that team's lineup is so good. <laughs> um, I, you know, D.J. LeMahieu uh, and Gio Urshela and Luke Boyd have made such a difference because unlike last year's Yankees, where we had so many strikeouts. I think this team is so much better at putting pressure on opponents by putting the ball in play.
1: What'd you think of your old pal Aaron Boone's meltdown last week? I don't know if it was a meltdown or just an intimidation act, but it uh, certainly
0: worked out. Patrick, I you know I texted him right away. And I said that's the second greatest rant of a manager. Sorry, you're behind Earl Weaver's famous rant toward who was it, Bill Haller? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> where he's going on and on and on. That was unbelievable, and. I think a lot of people who know Aaron as just being this super nice guy and very genial were surprised. And I've told friends all the time, he's got a snap gene in there. Okay. So there was a reason why when we worked on Sunday Night Baseball together, Aaron would watch uh, games of his alma mater, USC, alone in his room. Because <laughs> he didn't want anyone around to see this other Aaron. who <laughs> happened to pop out the other day, and I, I was showing my 15-year-old son the video of that. Uh, of that to show up, you know the funny the captions that was coming across, and our guys are savages. And as I showed it to him, and Aaron's voice popped up, our dog, who's you know this great dog, seven eight years old, put her tail between her legs, lowered her ears, and went in under the kitchen table. <laughs> Because she was so
1: afraid of Aaron's voice. She thought he was, She they, the dog thought that he was screaming at him, uh, or, or her, Exactly.
0: Wow.
1: Well, it was, you know what? I, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday, though, because the twins also, uh, because Wolcott really took one in the head. I don't know if you saw that foul ball. And they sent him to Arizona for, uh, you know, concussion protocol. And uh, they had a kid in there, Arrington or something, and he was he was pretty shaky, you know. He had, but but it is amazing how these guys, every you know every pitch borderline. If you're a young umpire like that, that they just called up, man, they're on you because they think they can intimidate you.
0: And I had just met that umpire, Brennan Miller, just a few days before, and that was one of the texts I sent Booney was, hey, I just met this guy. He's a great kid, like he's a great guy, and I don't know how you felt, Patrick. I thought the umpire handled it great. <laughs> yeah, he off, did. He, he, had, he had missed calls. There was no question about that. And then I think just looking at his face, within five seconds he realized, you know what, this is business. It's not personal. Yep. And he just let him have his say, and everyone just moved on. And, in fact, the next day after Boone got the one-game suspension from Major League Baseball— uh, he talked about how the umpire handled the whole situation a lot more professionally than Boone did with <laughs> the language that he used.
1: i tell you what, though, uh, and you, you know this, too, and we've had it now for 10, 12 years, but that box has made the umpire's job so much harder than it used to be. You missed a pitch by an inch and a half for 100 years. Nobody said anything. Now so, you miss a pitch. Now they show it a baseball that's outside the box, and you're you're terrible. It's uh, it's an amazing change, and I that it's made that job worse. And I think these guys are better ball and strike umpires than they've ever
0: been. One hundred percent. And you're right. You know, I I covered the famous Eric Gregg game in the playoffs. Yes, playoff I was there too. When, yeah, and it, you know, where you have Livon Hernandez throwing pitches that's you know are foot off the off the edge of the zone. And after the game, after the Braves lost and and Hernandez set a record for strikeouts, he told the room full of reporters, well, that's my strike zone. Yes. Well, my strike zone doesn't exist anymore. And you're right. After every missed call now, you have the hitter going down into the runway, immediately looking at video, and then, you know, communicating directly from the bench, you missed that call and all of this. I think reinforces my own feeling that, you know what, uh, the sooner the better with the robotic umps so we don't have all that uh griping going back and forth. They
1: better uh they better figure out how to be instantaneous with it, however. It's uh that's uh but uh the other thing somebody was saying and I don't know how this does it, but when you see like that Walcott kid take it in the head, uh you know, they also gotta be worried about plate umpires and concussions.
0: Oh, no, no question. I look I I think that that's, um, you know, something that you talk, I for my job on Sunday Night Baseball, I'm IQ first pitch, and so I'll go and meet with the umpires an hour and 15 minutes before our Sunday Night Games, and you go in there, and they're playing a game of spades, and, you know, you'll see a guy who the day before took a foul ball off his uh, wrist, off his hand, uh, hitting the, you know, in the privates. Uh, those guys get absolutely beaten up, and keep in mind, they're not, you know, on a hot day in New York at 101 degrees, yeah. they're not going into the dugout for it happening. <laughs> they're standing out there in the sunshine. So I, I agree with you. Um, you know, that, that's a, an issue that they have to deal with as much as catchers do.
1: All right. Hey, Buster, thanks for your time. We will talk in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Patrick. All right. The Great Buster only. ESPN and ESPN.com. Hey, uh, we're looking forward to Kevin Kernan from the New York Post. He's the columnist for the New York Post, baseball columnist. I've been doing a long time. He was at the Hall of Fame uh, this weekend, and he writes columns about both the Mets and the Yankees. We have seen the Mets on this homestand, and we are seeing the Yankees right now. Kevin Kernan is with us. He is the uh, baseball columnist for the New York Post. Uh, this homestand of the Twins started with the Mets. It now has the Yankees. Kevin, I was in that Mets clubhouse uh, a couple of times last weekend. They shouldn't be this bad. What's their problem?
2: No, they shouldn't be this bad, and, that, and that's exactly it. They have a lot of talent, uh, especially in the lineup. They have The biggest thing is the bullpen has killed them. The bullpen has killed him, and it has not gotten any better. Brody's made some mistakes as a neophyte GM, and that's, uh, that's really been the issue. He thought, he thought he could just bring in Diaz, and it would all work. He was told not to bring familiar back by people in uniform. He brought him back for $30 million, Ooh. and uh, that was really bad. So there's been a lot of mistakes by Brody Van Wagenen.
1: There's no excuse for Diaz. Oh,
2: man, that is some good
1: stuff. I don't get it. I guess he walks, he gets behind in the count, and he messes around. But, man, I'd take him in a heartbeat.
2: Yeah, he's, uh, I did, after they traded for him, I did a lot of research. And uh, I found out, scouts were telling me his slider was down. And I think what happened is, um, you know, he was still relying on the slider. Since they made the pitching coach change, he's got more fastballs so he hasn't been quite as terrible, but but his stuff hasn't just played up. I mean, these guys can catch up to this stuff now. Any kind of, you know, they can do it. So uh, it's been a combination, too. When he pitches well, Gesellman would mess up. Uh, When Gesellman and him would pitch well, Vermeer messed up almost every time. So, uh, you know, the Dodgers series, I was out there, and that really killed them when – when Diaz uh, blew a four-run lead, basically.
1: Say, is uh, having an 82-year-old Phil Reagan uh, as a, a pitching coach is comical from the inside, is
2: from the outside, or is this guy okay? <laughs> well, uh, I just I love Phil. He's a great guy. He did a yeah. big piece time him a couple of years ago. He's been everywhere. He's one of those baseball guys that's been in the middle of all the big moments because he's so so old. So um, he made a little adjustment in Wheeler's uh Wheeler's uh, uh, wind up, or how he started his uh, wind up from the stretch. And I said, Well, Phil, when did you come up with that? And he goes, Well, you know, in 1955, I was two years old then, and I'm old. He goes, In 1955, I started, uh, I started teaching and coaching uh, at some small college in Michigan. And he. he this is pretty interesting, though. He called back to his uh, the Tiger connections. And they sent him a bunch of film. That was film. (laughs) Film, not tape. He went through the film and and had to make up 12 lesson plans on the uh, art of pitching. And that's how he made it. So he might be the original video guy
1: in baseball. (laughs) Hey, uh, Kevin, my memory of Phil Reagan is trying to kill Tony Oliva with a fastball because Tony was ripping up the American League. And that was 1964, the third, the fifth game of the season in Tiger Stadium. So well, it, it is astounding. It's wonderful
2: stuff. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, they should have. Here's what happened. You've been there before. They wanted to make somebody a scapegoat. Yes. And and they tried to make Chuck Hernandez a scapegoat. I don't think Dave Ivan went for that. Chuck wasn't his guy, but Dave doesn't think that way. And then all of a sudden, a few days later, they both got fired. So never. <laughs> It's never the manager's fault when they're, when they're in charge like that or, or the GM's fault. You know, it's the, it's the pitching coach. They could have brought Phil Reagan along, and they also have a pitching strategist now, I think they call it. They could have put those people in. The big problem with the Mets, if you really want to boil it down, their top analytics guy has made some mistakes. Brody has leaned on him. That's where your issues are.
1: And uh, Callaway was going to be a savant, and now he's just kind of a a grump who doesn't know how to handle. They talk about the New York media. I don't think he could handle any media. Do you?
2: No, Mickey is really gone south. Um, He 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 had some. You know, I had a good relationship with Mickey. Always have. I I, I've talked to him, but he wasn't himself. He 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 became a puppet. Uh, He was afraid to say things. And in his one defense, I will say, upper management, basically, from the first day of spring training, Brody said, the, the players don't work for us, we work for the players. Wow. So that, create, yeah, that created an end around where the coaches and the manager were cut off at the knees right from the start. Because you know how players are when they get upset. It's always, you know, they're going to they're gonna complain about somebody so they could go right to upper management. And uh, but 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 having settled that, Mickey should be so much better. And I told him about a month ago. I said, I said, what happens to old mess managers besides getting fired? They don't get jobs again in baseball. And I think that's where uh, Mickey could be in some serious trouble. Maybe he'll settle for some kind of. Uh, I know he's very close with the GM in Minnesota, so maybe maybe he'll wind up with Mickey eventually.
1: Say, uh, you know what's a tragedy, Canole? I mean, the guy was a Hall of Famer four years ago, and uh, now he's just stealing money. It's uh, it's incredible uh, what's going on in that brain of his. There's got to be more ability than this to know. Yep,
2: there is. I've known him a long time. He's always um, he's always uh, played under moderation, I'll say. Yes. <laughs> Cause he, cause he, 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 in 2006, I believe, whatever the San Francisco All-Star game was, he uh, pulled the hammy right before them. Or a, a thigh muscle, and uh, he, he was basically out for, for eight weeks. And from that point forward, the rest of his career, because he's always played like 150 games, um, and of course, you had the uh, you know the PED mess. Yeah. and, and uh, he actually he had the best spring training I've seen anybody have in like the last five years. First half out of the year, hits a home run off of Scherzer, and, and everybody's thinking this is going to be okay. But from that point south.
1: I don't know when it was late in the last decade, and the Twins fans were all lamenting the fact that the Twins were jinxed by the Yankees. And I walked into their dugout at Target Field uh, right before batting practice, and there were Cano, Teixeira, A-Rod, and Jeter— sitting on the back of the, you know, the dugout bench, uh, and I said, I think I've detected the jinx here, uh, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. I think I ran into the jinx here, but that was, of course, when Cano was great. So now the Yankees are here, and uh, I asked Buster this question. I'll ask you, how is anybody going to beat that club in October in that ballpark?
2: Yeah, that ballpark. Especially, uh, well, first of all, you got to have a lefty pitcher. Yep. And, and you also... You can't be stupid, Aaron Judge. I did a piece about. Three, I was on the road with them about two weeks ago. I'll be in Boston after this series, and um, because I'm up here in Cooperstown, just leaving. And and Aaron Judge has made it a mission to hit the ball the other way, smartly mm-hmm. so. And that's what that's all he's doing. And I'm watching games, and he's getting an O two count. They don't pitch him inside. They put a fastball right on the tee in the corner. Boom, you know. 325-foot home run. Sometimes it's yep. 400 foot. But uh, <laughs> his leadership is incredible. The only way you're going to beat the Yankees is, is really when the, the, the cream of the crop, uh, the Garrett Coles, the Verlanders, if they can come through and beat these guys, it's going to have to be. Because the Yankees are still, they do have a weakness. Their pitching is still a little, their yep. study pitching is weak. If they don't fix that, they're going to blow a golden opportunity and they, in the past, they they they've made some mistakes. They didn't go the extra mile for Verlander. Didn't go the extra mile for Cole. They really came back to haunt them. So we'll see if they can come up with anybody. I talked to Brian. This uh, he he was up here this week with Mo Rivera going in, and you know he's gonna he's he's taking all kinds of calls. So he usually figures that away.
1: Say uh, you were up at the Hall of Fame. Six guys go in, and uh, you know I I'm tired of the Harold Baines bashing, but. Uh, how has that changed? Uh, I mean, do you you're a longtime baseball writer. I'm number ten or nine or something. What uh, what's this? What's the long term future of the baseball writers being the voters? If if a guy who got six percent is going into the Hall of Fame?
2: Yes, it's it's it basically. I think with these committees now, they're just pushing us aside. And uh, that's what you're getting. So you, they're trying to fix the mistakes that they think the baseball writers made. It's really yeah. that simple. And, uh, and the baseball writers have made some. Mistakes, oh, sure. You know? have, happens, yeah, yes. you know? yeah. Plenty of them. And, uh, but I do think, you know, I was thinking about this and I was talking to some. you know, I had some, um, went out for uh, with some drinks last night with some former players and things like that, hanging out. Um, and, and there were a lot of people, you know, about 20 people at this little party. And, uh, a couple people made some good points about you know what it's just so nice to see our guys get in, and, and this was one organization. And I thought about it for a second. I said, "What's the big deal?" I mean, you know, okay, so the, the hall gets a little bigger. Some fans get happy. Good, it's good that Edgar Martinez uh, Martinez got in. Yes, um, you know, it's really that. But Goose Gotts, who, who usually does put it best, he he told me the other day in the lobby of the Otisaga. He said, Are you kidding me? A one inning pitcher becomes the first unanimous selection by the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and he's 100% right. He goes, You know, and then he lists Ruth Sherrick. There's 100 pitchers. If you gave them that one inning, they, w- they would have been unanimous, too. So it's, uh, baseball is a little messed up. And. But it was only a little messed up. Yeah. Now it's a lot messed up. And yeah. So anything's possible in the future.
1: Uh, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna quibble with Mariano though because he did pitch two innings when he was needed in the postseason, which was every year. So
2: yeah, and and, and I talked to Eckersley about that. And Eckersley, you know, he has a great perspective because he was really the first one inning yes. guy. Well, I remember Molly Fingers sometimes, but it was mainly Eck. Louisa made Eck that one inning guy, and uh, he he says. Mariano, his numbers are so incredible. I watched him all these years. He, he's twice as good as ever I was. So he definitely, he's in the top rung. His ERA in the postseason is 07-0. You know, so that's not, and 42 saves. So, so he, he came when it was money time. And when he did get beat, it was usually some kind of broken bat. You know, very rarely you got a Sandy Alomar host home run. One quick thing on him, too. He's the Yankee longtime uh, uniform guy, Joe Ficina. He befriended Mariano his first day yeah. when he got there because Mariano couldn't speak English. needed to go meet his agent up in uh, Eastchester, which is up by New Rochelle. Joe lived in New Rochelle. They told Joe to get a cab. So Joe said, no, forget it. I'll take the kid. He takes the kid. He gives him his number. The kid can't speak any English. The phone rings the next day, and it's Mr. Joe. Yeah, this, this is Joe. This is Mariano. The um, stadium and... Joe couldn't think of how to speak any Spanish words, and then he remembered the song, Cuando, Cuando, (laughs) Cuando. And he said to Mariano, Cuando. Mariano says 2 p.m. They spent the next 10 years driving to the stadium and and became a great family friend. Uh, It's really a human interest story. One of those stories that you saw all the time behind the scenes in baseball, and that's the kind of guy Mariano was. And Joe actually and his family, 23 of them came up yesterday. So it's not just about the super celebrities. It's about the uh, people that really impact the player's career. They, uh, they, uh, they really started to teach Mariano really good English and, and it went from there and uh, it's a nice it was it was a wonderful day yesterday I
1: was uh, looking up when he was back here you know when they, uh, they you know he was being honored by everybody in his last year I was looking right. some stuff up and I the first time he was mentioned in a Star Tribune story he was he wasn't even Wetland setup man yet he was just kind of pitching some long relief and I guess he made a start or two but Tom Kelly, was managing the twins and said that guy came down from a higher league. When he saw wow. the move, when he wow. saw the movement on that uh, on that pitch of his, he said, That guy came down from a higher league. He was on him uh uh that early. So uh what uh you know, how's how's the Mets uh fan base? They're upset, but are they uh are they in good stead uh, as far as drawing people and doing that or are they hurting?
2: No, they're starting to hurt a little bit. It's really going to come down to the Will puns now because you also have a you have a battle of wills here. You have a father and a son who have two different um, uh, views of the team. The father wanted to hire a veteran GM like Gary Larocque or Melvin, yeah. and uh, the son had a uh, out of the box idea and um, so if, if I think Rody's got to really clean it up over the next year, mess fans. The Mets fans love to beat themselves up. I mean, it's a very (laughs) unique. It's a very, I can't even imagine. You know, I covered the Padres for years. Their fans were always optimistic, and they lived with it. The Mets fans, I swear to God, I was getting emails and texts and Twitter after the Mets won two in a row. And and, and also, some of their their, uh, their people I covered, they think, are we in it again? Are we in the race again? Are you kidding me? Look at your team. Look at where it's going. And if they, if they don't clean it up, they got a great player in Alonzo, uh, an all-around hitter in McNeil. But the problem with the Mets, if I had to boil it down to one thing, they don't know their own organization. <laughs> they didn't know Alonzo was good. They didn't know McNeil was good. The kid, Kalenick, that, that they traded for uh, Diaz. Everyone I talked to here at the Hall of Fame, there were a lot of uh, baseball executives. They all loved the kids. And uh, the Mets don't know their own organization. Until they know themselves... Uh, they will never succeed, and that comes right back to ownership.
1: One last question, Kevin. Uh, Jeff Einelsen, good friend of mine,
2: great friend of yours. Why the hell did he quit the Hall of Fame? Hey, he had the greatest job in the world. Maybe he got a little. And he, the great thing about Jeff's job is he could escape Cooperstown. He could go on the road and pick up a, a bat that someone hit. You know, yeah, uh, right. Runs with us. He got out of there. But I think Jeff. Uh, you know, Jeff was there. You, you forget about it, but Jeff was there like twenty five years. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like when I was talking to Bochy uh, a, a few weeks ago when I was in San Francisco. I said, Boach, and we know what's going on. There's different you know different leadership now and things like that. But I said, Bochy, why now? And he goes, Kevin. You know that deep voice. <laughs> he goes, Kevin. Twenty five years, three stents, as in heart stents. And he goes, three stents. That's enough. So uh, I think Jeff wanted to try something new, and uh, and and good for him. And our old friend Tim Meade is up there now, so that's nice. He's too.
1: great too. But Idleson, a survivor, the baseball version of a survivor, man, he made what? it through George. So he was exactly. one of the, he was one <laughs> of the nine guys that made it through George. One of my favorite events ever was when all those guys used to get together at the <laughs> baseball winter meetings and have a dinner and tell George stories. had. did you ever get to go?
2: Uh, uh no, I never did go to that. But I was sitting with two scouts the other day in uh, Miami, and uh, one of the gentlemen had worked for the Yankees, and he was just throwing one one uh, George story up. To another, <laughs> like, you know how they got things done. But the bottom line was George got things done. Oh damn yes, done. he did. You know, George would not, and I know he might have messed this up. He might have traded Judge. Judge might not be here. I get that. <laughs> but if he had this situation right now. I guarantee you that Berland or Cole will be on the scene.
1: Okay. Hey, Kevin, thanks very much for your time, sir, and we will talk to you again.
2: Always great to talk to you. You are one of the greatest of all time.
1: All right. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Kevin Kernan, the uh, sports columnist for the New York – the baseball columnist for the New York Post and – A veteran wild maniac too. So really, yes, yes. He he comes out from New York and sees how the other half lives for four days in beautiful downtown (laughs) Laramie. All right, we'll be. uh, That's it. We will uh, talk to you next week with TK Double Hitter.